0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Truth Loader, redacted tonight with comedian Lee Camp, Melissa Harris-Perry, Democracy Now!, We the Podcast, hosted by Congressman Keith Ellison, The Young Turks, and Activism Today, supporting a bill by Senator Bernie Sanders.
1: In 1970 and 2005, the U.S.'s prison population grew by a massive 700%, far outpacing both population growth and crime rates. (laughs) Today it's got to the stage where America is home to 5% of the world's population, but a quarter of the world's prisoners. And not only does America have the highest imprisonment rates of any country in the entire world, but it also has the highest rate of youth incarceration. Over 130,000 juveniles are detained in the US every year, and on any given day there are more than 70,000 youths in detention. But the biggest winners of this mass incarceration haven't been the American public but the private prison companies who are making giant profits out of people being in jail. According to the American Civil Liberties Union, in 2010 the two largest prison companies alone received nearly $3 billion in revenue while their top executives each received annual compensation packages worth more than $3 million. Private prisons didn't really exist before the early 1980s The US states and the federal government needed a solution to the overcrowding in public prisons. But between 1990 and 2009 the number of people in private prisons increased by a massive 1,600%. And the business model of these private prison companies essentially depends on locking more and more people up. The biggest of the U.S.'s private prison companies is the Corrections Corporation of America, otherwise known as the CCA. In its 2010 annual report to shareholders, the CCA stated, The demand for our facilities and services could be adversely affected by the relaxation of enforcement efforts, leniency in conviction or parole standards and sentencing practices, or through the decriminalization of certain activities that are currently prescribed by our criminal laws. The CCA seems to be particularly concerned about the decriminalization of drug use and any potential changes to immigration laws. For instance, any changes with respect to drugs and controlled substances or illegal immigration could affect the number of persons arrested, convicted and sentenced, thereby potentially reducing demand for correctional facilities to house them. Because of these concerns, private prison companies spend a lot of money on lobbying politicians. According to analysis by the Associated Press, between 2002 and 2012, the CCA, along with the US's second and third largest private prison companies, Geo Group Inc. and Management and Training Corporation, otherwise known as MTC, spent around $45 million on lobbying state and federal governments between them. And in addition to lobbying, These three companies also pour hundreds of thousands of dollars every year into the election campaigns of governors, state legislators and judges. And a report by the National Institute on Money in State Politics revealed that between 2003 and 2011, the CCA alone hired 199 lobbyists in 32 states, while GEO hired 72 lobbyists in 17 states. Worryingly, private prisons in America have been linked to numerous cases of violence and poor conditions. This CCTV video shows a brutal beating of 24-year-old Hani Elabed by another inmate at the CCA-run Idaho Correctional Centre in January 2010. Elabed was left with permanent brain damage from the attack and later died in 2012 though it was unclear whether his death was related to the injuries he sustained in prison. Following the attack on El Abed, the American Civil Liberties Union filed a lawsuit against the CCA on behalf of a number of inmates at the centre. The inmates claimed that violence at the centre was so widespread they called it Gladiator School and that understaffing and mismanagement by CCA officials was contributing to the violence rates. The CCA denied these claims, but agreed to a settlement in which they were instructed to carry out operational changes and increase staffing levels. However, more than two years later, in September 2013, a federal judge found the CCA in contempt of court for violating the settlement. And then the following month, the CCA announced that it would be leaving Idaho. The ACLU has also filed a lawsuit against the state of Mississippi over conditions at the East Mississippi Correctional Facility. Donald Weeks is a former prisoner at the facility, which was run by GEO until July 2012, and is now run by MTC.
2: Was run by GEO the first two months that I was there. Just dirty, nasty, unsanitary conditions. I mean, people get stabbed in there. They're bleeding, or they get in a fight and they're bleeding. They don't give, they don't give no cleaning chemicals to clean the place up or nothing. The sewer kept backing up in the zones, uh, the toilets kept stopping up. stench was so bad in there, I couldn't eat anymore.
1: A spokesperson for MTC says that conditions have significantly improved since the company took over from GEO, but the ACLU disputes this. This track record is all the more worrying because many of those in private prisons are some of the most vulnerable people in the system. Nearly 40% of all detained juveniles are committed to private facilities, while nearly half of all immigrant detainees are now held by private companies. And to be clear, most immigrant detainees are being held while waiting to have their cases decided in court, not serving time for a crime they've been convicted of committing. In 2012, a federal judge transferred all prisoners out of the formerly geo-managed Walnut Grove Youth Correctional Facility in Mississippi after finding it to be a picture of such horror as should be unrealized anywhere in the civilized world. Prison staff had sex with imprisoned youth in what investigators called among the worst we have seen in any facility in the nation. According to Geo, the abuses documented occurred before the company had taken over Walnut Grove in late 2010, but this is disputed by the U.S. Justice Department. This map, produced by the ACLU following a Freedom of Information request, also shows allegations of sexual abuse of detainees since 2007 at immigration detention facilities across the U.S. In total, there have been nearly 200 reports of sexual abuse during this time, but the ACLU believes that this is just the tip of the iceberg and that many other cases have gone unreported. Unfortunately for the private prison companies, however, crime rates in the US have actually been on the decrease for the past decade, and so they've been resorting to more aggressive tactics to make money. A 2013 report from the In the Public Interest Resource Centre revealed that some companies have been signing contracts with states that contain clauses guaranteeing high prison occupancy rates. Some contracts require 90-100% to occupancy. This means that if the private prisons in question aren't filled to the agreed capacity, then either the state has to find more people to put in those prisons or pay the company for the unused beds. And three companies in Pennsylvania even resorted to bribing officials to get beds in their facilities filled. In August 2011, former Luzerne County Judge Mark Chivarella Jr. was sentenced to 28 years in prison after sending children to detention centers owned by these companies in return for illegal payments amounting to millions of dollars. Some of those he sentenced were as young as 10 years old. And now, campaign groups like the ACLU and Brave New Foundation feel that private prison companies could be set to profit from federal immigration reform. (laughs) The U.S. House Judiciary Committee has passed the SAFE Act, which, if turned into law, would turn millions of undocumented immigrants into criminals overnight and make not having papers punishable by months or even years in U.S. prisons. But if business starts to go bad for the private prison companies in the U.S., then there's always the rest of the world. The U.K. currently has a 106% prison occupancy rate, creating an opportunity for private prison companies to jump in as they did in the U.S. in the 1980s, while Australia's controversial immigration detention system is now operated entirely by private companies. (laughs) And last year, Geo saw 14% of its revenues coming from international contracts.
3: black people maybe don't hate them but just don't want them in your face or your neighborhood or your grocery store these days employment and housing discrimination are illegal but what if i told you there was something easy you could do to keep the black community down right now you're probably thinking this guy's full of it (laughs) but no i'm not all you have to do is support private prisons Your tax dollars pay private prison companies which make sure to keep people black people locked up. Yes, violent crime rates have plunged in the last few decades, so we had to find other reasons to put people black people behind bars. We did so by acting like illegal drug use is worse than prescription drug use, or beating your wife, or laundering millions of dollars from drug cartels. HSBC, I'm looking in your direction. Drug use amongst blacks and whites is virtually the same. Yet blacks are convicted four times more often. And when a black person is convicted of the same crime as a white person, they receive sentences that are 20% longer. Can you imagine remaining in prison an extra year just because of the extra pigment in your skin? It's a beautiful thing. So support our prison industrial complex. You can even invest in it on Wall Street, where our stocks are doing great. I mean, talk about a win-win situation. You make money by investing in us, and there are fewer people to take the good parking spots. Black people. The prison industrial complex, keeping America's backdoor class system in place for generations.
4: The study looks beyond the tally of prison populations and taxpayer dollars to take stock of the human costs of mass incarceration. Over the course of a year, researchers from the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights Forward Together and Research Action Design worked with 20 community organizations to interview hundreds of formerly incarcerated persons, their families, and their employers. Their findings, compiled in a report titled, Who Pays the True Cost of Incarceration on Families, show that the consequences of criminal justice policies extend far beyond the incarcerated individual and past the end of a sentence to reverberate with long-term harms throughout their families and communities. The researchers learned that the loss of a family member to the prison system exacerbates economic, emotional, and physical vulnerabilities, and that those burdens fall most heavily On low-income women of color back with me is representative Barbara Lee from California MSNBC contributor EJ Dion and joining us now is also Wade Henderson president and CEO of the leadership conference on civil and human rights and Mark Maurer executive director of the sentencing project and Mark I want to start with you basically just to, to get to this question that is the report who bears the costs of incarceration. Well, you know, we often forget
5: the day that a person is sentenced in the courtroom, it's not only that person, but his or her entire family is bearing some of that burden. The person goes away for a few years. In most states, most prisoners come from urban communities. Most prisons are built in rural communities, often hundreds of miles away from home. So now we say, well, it's very important for people in prison to keep up ties with their family, and yet we make it very difficult for them to do that so if you want to go and visit your loved one in prison you mm-hmm. need a good car to get there you probably have to pay for a hotel if you want to get a phone call home prisoners have to call collect at exorbitant rates uh, so you're constantly balancing do I buy milk and groceries for hmm. kids or do I take a call from my husband in prison and that's a terrible choice to have to make.
4: That, that idea that um, that People who are incarcerated come from poor communities and and families most frequently. And then those poor communities and families end up also bearing Mm -hmm. those costs. And so, wait, part of what's happened in this kind of shift around our incarceration language has been an economic discourse. So I remember if you were a criminal justice reformer 15 years ago, it was the prison industrial complex and how there was big money to be made in the system. And now we're hearing, oh, it's just a bad (coughs) investment for localities. And so I I guess I have a, a little bit of a hard time balancing any of this as an economic rather than a, an ethical question. Well,
6: there is an extraordinary economic underpinning to the prison industrial complex, mm-hmm. but I think uh, Tanahisi's uh, article, as well as the Ella Baker report, really underscore three things. One, there is consequence at the intersection of policy uh, on criminal justice reform, uh, and as well as uh, unconscious bias and uh, a structural inequality. Uh, secondly, there is a huge issue with respect uh, to the uh, voting process. Uh, participation mm-hmm. of individuals in their communities and unless we restore the Voting Rights Act the idea of seeking reform as I think these articles emphasize mm-hmm. can be difficult to achieve mm-hmm. and then thirdly every member of Congress on the Judiciary Committee should be required to read these articles and this report mm-hmm. because I really think they paint uh, a picture that is both powerful and compelling and provides insight on how the unintended consequences of mass incarceration really under cut, the ability to achieve meaningful reform in the communities which are affected by them.
4: you know this the way that you've sort of put these two together Coates's piece and this Ella Baker piece feel to me very much like the Ferguson report of kind of our national incarceration story because we can see that 63 percent of family members who are paying the cost of conviction 83 percent of those are women we see that that families go into debt one in three families go into debt because of the phone calls and visits that you were just talking about so like the Ferguson report that talks about policing kind of these interactions in a narrow sense but then a much broader kind of economic consequences how this whole system is built on poor folks that just feels to me like oh well now Coates and the Ella Baker um, report has shown us how this is true nationally. Well you know, one of the most interesting things
5: I thought about Coates's piece is the way he used the Moynihan report. Because mm-hmm. there are a lot of us who believe that family structure matters and that you need to help people put the family back together. Mm-hmm. That if you care about equality, you've got to care about the family. If you care about the family, you got to care about equality. But what this piece shows us is all right to everybody who says what I just said, to everybody who talks about the family, would you please look at what the impact mm-hmm. of our incarceration mm-hmm. policies have on families? If you care about families, you got to worry about the over-incarceration of people. And then the other thing about the report and this piece is you've got to see this in the context of whole communities mm-hmm. and the problems facing whole communities. And, you know, I'm a family guy, but yep. I know it's not just the family. Right? And the so family I think putting these things together is really advances the discussion we're having mm-hmm. of over-incarceration
7: in the country. Let me give first a shout out to the Ella Baker Center. They're yes. located in Oakland, <laughs> California and yes, they, they are, are phenomenal yes, they work. Are. Yeah. Phenomenal work. Secondly, uh, I think what uh, Tana Hesse has said uh, makes the case for what he wrote about in his first piece, the case for reparations. Okay. Secondly, let me put a couple of things in context in terms of public policy in terms of our incarceration rates. First, formerly incarcerated individuals who are out now who were incarcerated for a drug conviction mm-hmm. denied Pell Grants. Yep. We have legislation trying to yep. unravel that. Yep, That's wrong. But Secondly, ineligible for like drug offenses, mm-hmm. or food stamps, mm-hmm. SNAP benefits. Mm-hmm. Thirdly, ineligible for uh, public housing. Mm-hmm. And so what Michelle Alexander titled her book, uh, The New Jim Crow, we see policies now that are re-segregating uh, People who have been incarcerated, especially for nonviolent drug offenses. It's wrong, it's morally wrong, and it's, it, it's destroying many, many families.
0: the The cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way.
8: Now let's talk about The Wire, uh, about the city of Baltimore, your city, which has been described, The Wire has been described as the best show on television, the best television series ever broadcast. Uh, USA Today called it astounding. It was known for creatively explaining some of the most complex principles of capitalism and industry. This is a conversation between three street-level drug dealers about who's really profiting from McDonald's Chicken McNuggets. This is right, yo.
9: Mmm. Mmm. Good with the hot sauce, too, though. Most definitely. Yo, Jay, you want some nuggets?
6: Nah, go ahead,
9: man. Man, whoever's these, yo, he off the hook. What? Mmm. The bone all the way out the damn chicken. Till he came along been chewing on drumstick. getting made things all greasy. He said,
10: later for the bone. Nugget at that meetup and make some real money. You think the man got paid? Who? Man who invented these. Richer than them all.
6: Why? You think you get a
10: percentage? Why not? Please. The man who invented them things, just some sad ass down at the basement of McDonald's. Thinking of to make some money for the real player. Nah man, that ain't right. Right? It ain't about right. It's about money. Now, you think Ronald McDonald going to go down that basement and say, hey, Mr. Nugget, you the bomb. We selling chicken faster than you can tear the bone out. So I'm going to write my clowny-ass name on this fat-ass check for you. Hey. And the n- who invented them things, still working in the basement for regular wage, some to make the fries taste better or some like that. Believe.
8: Still have the idea, though. A clip from The Wire.
11: <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much macroeconomics. That's you know that's uh, capitalism as it actually exists.
8: Talk about what you're doing with The Wire. For someone who's just come to this country, knows nothing about it. I mean, he has a huge cult following. Um... Yeah,
11: it's, it, it's hard to sort of sum up 60 hours, but if I had to put it in a paragraph, um, it's, it's a city in which a rigged, rigged game is demonstrated. Um, and... Uh, power routes itself, and money routes itself away from from our from our characters. Um, it's a critique of modern capitalism, of, of our unencumbered capitalism, or, or or only modestly encumbered capitalism, as the case may be. Um, and it, it's also a, on a more practical, sort of episode to episode level. It's a it's an argument against the drug war and and uh, uh, the over policing of the poor. And um, I thought if it could accomplish anything, maybe it could get an argument started about the drug war. Because having covered it for most of my time as a, as a reporter, it was probably the biggest issue I covered, um, there was nothing about it that was functional. It was the most dystopic policy. Everything it claimed to try to address in terms of illegal drug use or, 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 the, or what the, the, the bad that drugs do, it had very little effect on. And instead it became a war on the poor. And uh, I didn't believe that at first. I came to it sort of innocently as a young, young reporter. But by the time I'd finished covering it and written the corner and, 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 and done the work I'd done, uh, I was unalterably against it as policy. Um, so it was a critique of the drug war, specifically. But overlaying that was an argument that um, we've created almost by will these two separate Americas. And the economic rules that we apply to one... Don't work in the other, and we know that, and, and we're comfortable with that.
8: You talk about two different Americas. You say your country, America, is a horror show. You've been quoted um, as saying that.
11: You know, in terms of you know, well, my country's a lot of different things. I'm not speaking of the entire. Into- you know, I'm an American. I have, I have, uh, I wish to would f- affirm as an American, but economically and politically and socially, the 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 fact that we are these two separate Americas traveling distinctly different paths you know i live in one i live in baltimore i live in a, a city that i love uh, i live 20 blocks away from the world of the wire uh and you know i mean just on a level of violence my chance of being murdered in baltimore uh being white is the same as if i was living in omaha nebraska right now same it doesn't matter that i live in baltimore i live in you know downtown baltimore does not matter if i was if i was a, a black male between the ages of 16 and 45 uh i think uh, homicide would be the second leading cause of death you know it's the outcomes uh in 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 these different places that are so predicated on on the economic privations and on lack of power and, and 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 the fact that The entire industrial base which used to support my city has moved elsewhere and and is not part of our economy anymore. And what remains behind, you know, the sort of vestigial service economy, it it, it serves some of us and it it doesn't even reach. It it has no no remote connection to the lives of other of us. So we're building these two separate societies in incredible proximity to each other. It's amazing.
8: I wanted to go to your meeting with President Obama at the White House um, after he praised your work on The Wire, um, uh, saying it was his favorite television show. Um, President Obama discussed the fallout from the U.S. crackdown on nonviolent drug offenses.
12: Consequence of that was this massive trend towards incarceration, even of nonviolent drug offenders. And I I saw this uh, during the period that you were... Mm -hmm reporting and then uh you know starting to, to write for, for television. I saw this from the perspective of the state legislator, this this just explosion of uh, incarcerations, disproportionately African American and Latino. Yep. Uh, and the the challenge which you know you depict in your show is uh, folks go in at great expense to the state, many times trained become more hardened criminals while in prison, come out and are funct- uh, basically unemployable Right. Uh, and end up looping back in. Permanently uh, a part of the other America
11: exactly. that can't be pulled back. Nobody incarcerates their population at this level. Right. Uh, and to look at it, when I came in as a police reporter, the federal prison population was about 34% violent offenders. Yeah. Um, when I left as a police reporter... 13 years later, it was about 7%. Right. So these were less violent people getting longer sentences. Of course, there was the elimination of parole and good time, and you know, all you had was good time. And so people were staying in. Right. And and you're absolutely right. They come back out completely tarred. They can't vote. They can't participate in their community. That They've lost track of families. Families have been destroyed. Communities have been upended. And if it was this draconian and it worked, then maybe we could have a discussion that said, what we're doing is working work. yeah it, it's it's terrible and it's we're losing a lot of humanity but hey it's working yeah but it doesn't work
8: david simon at the white house with president obama how did that meeting come about
11: <laughs> uh... it was a shock to me um... i had agreed almost sort of reluctantly to participate in a bipartisan seminar on reducing uh... federal i, I guess all prison population by fifty percent that had been sponsored not only by some democratic uh, uh, factions, but by, by Newt Gingrich, by uh, the Koch Industries people. I mean, it had it had it has the chance actually in this next eighteen months of getting some 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 traction uh, on Capitol Hill, simply because every side realizes, for different reasons, that this level of, of of incarceration is insane. That we can't sustain it. You know, the conservatives are looking at it because of the cost, this much prison construction. You know, we've been led so astray. By uh, the privatization of of the, uh, the prisons and the prison industrial complex, and by the drug war, that even some you know uh, some conservatives are getting off the train now, and they're willing to give uh, the Obama administration the victory because it's a it's a lame duck. You know it does it won't it won't extend to the next you know mm. it, it, they're willing to let it happen now. So
8: and, and do you think Obama's doing things that he w- wasn't willing to do before because of legacy? I, I don't
11: th- yeah, I don't think you mess with the drug war until you're in the last uh, in the last in, last term and I don't think you do it until after the midterms and I think now you're seeing you know it this is a lost leader in terms of political capital you know nobody wants to be portrayed as being um, soft on crime so I think now is the time to do it now is the window uh, so they asked me to do this and once I agreed all of a sudden I think the president was going to send some remarks, some videotaped remarks, to uh, to, the, to the to this event that I was going at. And instead, I was invited to the White House to have this fifteen-minute discussion with him. And uh, um, you know, I wore a tie. I, wore a I noticed. I wore a, I wore a suit for the first time. And you know, I mean, you know, like the next time I might be being buried. The next time you see me in a suit, but uh, I did everything I could because you know, listen. I, I, I was happy to be a microphone stand for this, which I, you know, if I have an opinion about anything after all those years of reporting and storytelling and narrative, uh, the drug war has to end. It just has to end.
8: I want to go back to The Wire, to the main theme in The Wire, which is that relationship between the police and, I mean, especially looking at Freddie Gray today, um, between the police and the mm-hmm. guys, the kids often on the corner.
13: Mm-hmm.
7: we ain't done that
10: seriously i was just sitting in my chair reading the magazine is all and watching your crew work a ground stash you mean
14: (laughs) 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 y'all still taking a charge for this you know that you're a truant try wednesday
10: and i'm past see why y'all lock me up
0: Burn. we need to block every lane here hey shut it down some police operation here let's get back to your post let's back this vehicle's up excuse me
3: officer i'm not telling you again tony calm down
0: officer if you
10: could just move your car forward just a little bit i'm gonna get right down the road
8: We're the police in that scene from The Wire. The officer throws one of the young men into the back of a police van, a pretty chilling scene given what's transpired in Baltimore and with the death of Freddie Gray. But this was a regular practice during the years of zero-tolerance policing in Baltimore between 99 and 2007 when Martin O'Malley, that's right, the presidential candidate, was mayor. In 2005 alone, the police department made more than 100,000 arrests in a city of just 640,000 people. How did zero tolerance affect the city, and what are your views of Martin O'Malley running for president?
11: (laughs) Poor Marty. Um, Well, uh, the first thing is, you know, the drug war as a whole, when you fight a war, you need an enemy. If you're going to go on a war footing, then you have an enemy. And that's what the drug war did. It basically took... uh, uh, a, a, you know, th- th- there were always fundamental problems be- of policing in the inner city between uh, the Baltimore Department and, and communities. But there was at least some basic code of logic as to who went in the back of a police van. Um, the drug war slowly eroded that, even before Mar- Marty became mayor. And then Marty's first year as mayor, I was impressed his first year. His first year, he had a very good police commissioner named Eddie Norris who was very good at locking the right people up. And locking the right people up, taking out the right trash, that's what a good police department does. And and Jill Levy, I don't know if you know Jill Levy's book uh, out of L.A. that came out last year, uh, *Ghetto Side*, but she makes a very powerful argument that in some ways uh, the inner city is both under-policed and over-policed. It's over-policed on all the stuff that is, it is much like that, that is that is basically uh, harassment and and sort of a beleaguered, Community that, that is being sort of affronted on all sides over over small stuff that is related to sort of clearing corners in the drug war. And when it comes to, you know, uh, again, black lives matter in the most fundamental sense in terms of the rate of homicide and the rate of violence, uh, those crimes don't get solved. They don't get attended to. The, the clearance rates for murder in places like Compton or, or West Baltimore are extraordinarily low. They're in the 30s, um, whereas in the rest of America, they'd be in the 60s or 70s. Um, so they don't get the policing they need. they get the policing they don't need. And with Marty, he came in that first year. It uh, was very admirable. And then Norris left for reasons you know that are complicated. But it was almost as if he couldn't get the reductions in the murder rate that he had promised as a candidate. And the next three or four years were, let's just throw everybody in the back of a van. And if you think I'm exaggerating, all you have to do is read the the ACLU suit that they, the city eventually settled because, it didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter if you were uh, somebody sitting on your own stoop or a school teacher or somebody coming home from work. If you looked at a cop the wrong way in Baltimore, in, in about those three central years when Marty was trying to become governor, you went in the back of a police van, you were taken out of the city jail, you know, held overnight. They were just trying to clear the corners because they had lost the framework for actual police work. They, they didn't know how to actually solve crimes anymore, but they did know how to fill the wagons. You would go downtown to the city jail... And they'd ask you to sign a form saying, "I won't sue hmm. if I if I don't sue." Oh, you, we'll let you go now if you sign the form. But if you don't sign the form, we're keeping you for longer.
10: week on We The Podcast, we're looking at the issue of prison phone rates. For the 2.2 million people incarcerated in America, staying connected with their families is very difficult. But it's made even more difficult as phone calls to loved ones cost as much as $14 a minute. Yep, in some places it's as high as 14 bucks a minute. Such a high cost really adds up. Some families spend hundreds or even thousands of dollars Every single year on telephone calls, that means many will have to decide between talking to their loved one who is incarcerated and paying for other necessities like electricity or health care. There's evidence to suggest that greater connection to community, family, loved ones leads to lower rates of recidivism when Americans who are incarcerated return home. That means these phone calls are critical to rehabilitation and maintain important social connections. In 2012, the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, placed a limit on what companies could charge for interstate phone calls, reducing rates from as high as $14 a minute to $0.25 cents a minute. But that does not apply to intrastate phone calls, calls within the state. More work needs to be done. Capping the rates made for out-of-state calls wasn't enough. Calls within the state were were still too high for families to afford without causing real financial hardship. Basically separating children from dads, children from moms, family members from family members. For Vina K, an activist for Voices for Racial Justice in Minnesota, the fight for families became personal.
15: My friend Kevin Reese connected me to his son, Kevin Reese the who is twelve years old. And This is when it becomes really personal because this issue of prison phone rates was impacting this family in a very deep way. So Kevin Reese is 12. Kevin Reese the third is 12 years old. His dad has been incarcerated for 11 years. So that means that this father and this son have built a relationship over those 11 years through the phone. For you know because the prison is not nearby because it's hard for young kevin to get to visit his dad the phone is really the way they stay connected these phone calls that help young kevin tell his dad about his day at school tell him about the sports that he's interested in he said to me we even talk about girls and to me that is it's such a beautiful story but it's also such a sad story because Families like Kevin's have to make choices about how they can afford to pay to stay connected to each other, or how they can afford to get food on the table, to pay rent, to get clothes for their kids. I mean, all of these things are choices when you are an under-resourced family in Minnesota or anywhere in the country, and the high prison phone rates are forcing families like this to have to make these hard choices.
10: These families were determined to be heard. They were eventually able to meet with Federal Communications Commissioner Mignon Clyburn. I asked Commissioner Clyburn about that meeting and how it motivated her to act.
9: Back in two thousand uh, two, a two thousand twelve congressman, a group of advocates called me into a very crowded, hot room. Uh, really, I think it was in, in November of uh, twenty twelve, and they said, "Commissioner." For almost a decade, we have been attempting to get relief from egregiously high costs of our constituents, the people we care about, who have families um, and friends, loved ones uh, in prison. Uh, the lawyers were having problems keeping in touch and providing services for those who uh, were incarcerated, and no one is listening. Uh, we tried the courts. Uh, The court said this is um, an FCC decision, uh, and the FCC uh, basically took um, did the paperwork, um, uh, took in the the information, and honestly did not take the next series of steps that would provide relief. I heard this story. I heard about them filing with us once in 2003 and another time in 2007 uh, trying to seek relief. And I said, enough is enough. Uh, it is time for us to act, um, and we can do so. And families are suffering, and that is why I keep people pleaded uh, for me for help. We were not acting, and I said now is the time for us to act. When you say high rates, how high are we talking about? Well, we have seen rates in um, one particular case with um, a, a an advocate as high as fourteen dollars per minute. Whoa. Now that is a a case that um uh, Mike is definitely outside of the norm but it has happened we have had it on record it is a part of this case on average uh you will see rates are, uh, are around uh, it's not uncommon for there be a, a a $1 per minute um rate um for mm. those um and, and so when you talk about again families who are already economically um disadvantaged um that level of of expense is really further bankrupting them and about 34 percent of those inmates keep in touch with their families on a regular basis and that number is so low because the prices are so high.
10: At $14 a minute a 30-minute phone call would cost more than 400 bucks. For these families, many of whom are low-income impossible choices had
15: to be made. They've lost a family member to the incarceration system, so temporarily they've lost, you know, that person's income and potential. And temporarily it can be many years. So they're working with resources. Um, you know, it's true that our incarceration system affects low wealth communities at a higher rate than middle yep. class communities. So, you know, we are um, putting the burden of of the simple right to stay connected on the people who can least afford it. And there's something wrong with that system. You know, we also know that being connected to the community and connected to families helps to reduce recidivism. And so why not? (laughs) Why not make calls affordable, especially when we know that the long-term impact is only going to be positive?
10: Commissioner Clyburn agreed. These rates can have a devastating impact on the income of a family and the connection between family members
9: family that is already economically strained cannot meet the basic needs and so when we talk about uh, our communities of uh, being uh, just uh, you know devastated, there are compounding reasons for this and when you talk about those two point two million uh, people uh, two point seven of them um, are, are 2.7 children who are impacted, that means that the primary breadwinner in the majority of this case, six, 50% of those who are in prison were the primary breadwinners for mm. those now 2.7 million children. So that goes away. And so when that goes away, and when and if those persons come back to society, guess what? Um, more than 40% of their earning power goes away. Um, but the majority of them, many of them, do not have a job five years, three to five years later. But when they get a job, if they have a job, uh, a great bulk of their income uh, is, um, is 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 wiped away uh, because of that sentence. So what we have is not only the person um, who was the primary breadwinner um, now gone. Not only uh, will a family. Uh, with that economically devastation, economic devastation, not only um, uh, you know uh, is, is that foundation gone. They're trying to keep in touch with that loved one because um, they care for them. They care for that economic their um, you know their physical uh, and and mental well-being. Um, but these high rates um, that we have seen have really been prohibiting uh, families from doing so, and this economic spiral uh, just continues what you are seeing is a cycle um, that is um, that is perpetuated so if you cannot afford to keep in touch with your primary breadwinner uh that means that uh you may not be able to have a computer in your home we heard one story that um, families are foregoing what we would think are basic uh necessities meaning broadband connectivity you know having com- a computer uh mm-hmm. having shoes having clothes you know those sure. things are be uh, are being compromised because the majority of the families cannot keep in touch. Thirty four percent of the families that were surveyed went into debt because of these phone calls and visits alone. Thirty four percent went into debt, and when you talk about the entire cost um, of um, incarceration, um, when you think about the court related fines and fees. And the phone calls, it is not uncommon for a person, um, you know, uh, at the beginning of that sentence to see an amount of debt that will equal their annual income.
14: We have an interesting phenomenon in this country where we have two candidates uh, in the two different parties who are both surging, significantly so. One is on the Republican side and it's nonstop coverage. I know part of the reason why, and we do it too. He says such outrageous things that you have to talk about it. It's unbelievable. On the other side, though, we have Bernie Sanders who's surging on the Democratic side. And uh, who has looked into why that is happening? Where's the coverage on that? I believe the coverage is summarized in this audio clip. Perhaps some of the mainstream media folks don't want to know why he's searching, because if you looked into it, you'd find out, hey, the guy has really reasonable positions that resonate with a significant portion of the country, and certainly a significant portion of the Democratic Party. Now, if he were saying crazy things, oh, the media would be all over it, right? (laughs) So, But every once in a while they'll say he's a radical or, you know, he's this or he's that, right? You, you'll see talk like that on Fox News, on MSNBC's Morning Joe program, and extremists, is that. Really? What has he said that's extreme? Oh, right, nothing. In fact, the reason you're not covering him, if you were to give me a state of reasoning, you'd be like, oh, it's boring. He's just coming out with uh, policy decisions. And apparently there's nothing radical at all. Otherwise, you guys would be foaming at the mouth. So now here's another position he just took today which uh, the majority of the country agrees with, an overwhelming majority of the Democratic Party agrees with, anyone with a mind agrees with, which is, we have private prisons in this country? We have people make a buck off of putting people in jail? Well then, And then they get to contribute to politicians? Gee, I wonder how that's going to turn out. That's going to turn out with the highest incarceration in the, rate in the world, and that's exactly where we are. So, today, Vermont Senator and Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders said that he will introduce legislation to abolish private prisons, one piece of his comprehensive racial, racial uh, justice reform package. But it doesn't have to be about racial justice, man. It's about justice for all Americans. If somebody's getting paid to put people in jail, they're going to put more people in jail. And I got news for you, if you're a white person, uh, at some point they're going to run out of young uh, black males to put in, and they're going to put in young white males, and then females, and on and on it goes, because they're getting paid for it. I like Bernie's approach, I'm not going to look at reforms, I'm going to end it. No more private prisons, done. Oh, that would be wonderful. Currently, 16% of federal prisoners are housed in private prisons. Unbelievable. Two largest prison corporations, GEO Group and Corrections Corporation of America, together take in $3.3 billion in annual revenue, and the industry doubled in size between 2000 and 2010. And they brag about it. Oh, we doubled in size. Now, you make sneakers. Hey, you sold twice as many Nikes. Congratulations to you. You make burgers. Hey, you sold twice as many burgers. Oh, fantastic. What do you guys make? Oh, we make prisoners. And we doubled in size. Business is good. We're making billions of dollars. How'd you do that? Oh, perhaps some uh, donations to politicians might have a role in this. So let's go to those facts. The National Institute on Money in Politics found that GEO contributed $6,051,178 to Republican, Democratic, and third-party candidates over the past 13 years. GEO and Corrections Corporation of America together have spent nearly $25 million on lobbying efforts since 1989. Now, does anyone believe they did that out of the goodness of their heart? Do you think the good folks, the Corrections Corporation of America, think, hmm, so what's a good charity? What's, what's a good way to uh, use our money? We can give it to impoverished uh, families, needy children. No, no, we could arrest those. Those would be a lot better. Oh, I got it. Let's give it to a politician. That would be the charitable thing to do. No, they're looking for return on investment. You give these uh, politicians a little bit of money, the great majority of them, with a one obvious exception, okay, the guy who came up with this policy position, you give it uh, them money, what do they give you in return? Oh, we need more private prisons in my state. Yeah, that's what I need. And you know what? Those private prisons, they need more prisoners. We'll get to that in a second as well. A recent report, in fact, it's it's right here. A recent report found that private prison corporations spent $11 million over six years to lobby Congress to keep immigrants in detention centers. So it isn't just about, let's build more prisons. It's, give me more prisoners. How am I going to get more prisoners? Goddamn illegal immigrants you see what they're doing you see how they're all rapists and criminals right gimme give gimme give gimme give let's put them all in prison oh look at that i made a couple more billion dollars eleven million dollars to the politicians all of a sudden the politicians Oh, the undocumented immigrants illegal aliens what are we gonna do get tough on them put them in prison give me the money we legalize bribery in this country man those are the guys who should be in prison the ones taking the bribes from the prisons in the first place <sighs> Black Americans are imprisoned at six times the rate of whites. Sanders notes on his campaign website and if the trend continues, one in four black males born today can expect to spend time in prison. one in four man Now you know racists look at that and go, oh well, I guess they're committed crime at six times the rate. Now I tell you man, I talked to former Baltimore police officers they said if we're in white areas, we don't arrest people because they it's rich, it's powerful. It could be the judge's son. We're not going to arrest them. We literally go into black neighbors and just arrest people. Another Baltimore cop, Joe Crystal, I just did the interview with him. Check it out for yourself. Listen to them. Actually, open up your ears and listen to these former cops. Joe Crystal's still a cop, but in a different place in Florida now. He says, yeah, we were told we got quotas. you got to make arrests. It doesn't matter if they're the right guy or the wrong guy. And then they say, crime's out of control. What do we need to do? Arrest more people. No, you need to arrest the right people. But you're not going to know who the right people are. If you don't have cooperation from the community, you're not going to get cooperation from the community if you keep treating them like they're the bad guys and that you're an occupying force. And you keep feeding the private prison system with more prisoners. Of course they don't trust you. You get paid to sell them down the river, literally in this case. So Bernie Sanders on his website says, It is morally repugnant and a national tragedy that we have privatized prisons all over America. In my view, corporations should not be allowed to make a profit by building more jails and keeping more Americans behind bars. It's the most obvious thing in the world. At this point, a lot of real conservatives across the country also agree. They say, well, what are we wasting all of our money imprisoning these people for? That's taxpayer dollars. And then you're making a buck off of it, and you're putting in a margin on top of that, and then you're doing crony capitalism and paying off the local politicians so they'll send you more prisoners with our taxpayer dollars? Yeah, that's what's happening. Conservatives, liberals, moderates, you gotta realize you gotta unite. Because it's it's not us versus each other, man. It's the establishment. It's the moneyed interests, it's the lobbyists, it's the donors united against us, whether it's Bernie Sanders or someone else. And then you look, there are other people who are against private prisons, and some uh, even, believe it or not, local Republican figures uh, now finally against private prisons. Okay, That trend is finally just beginning, right? Then get behind those guys, because this is insane to get make a buck off of imprisoning your fellow citizens. It's the exact opposite of freedom and what this country is supposed to stand for. And Bernie Sanders says it is immoral to take campaign contributions from the private prison industry or its lobbies. It is obviously morally repugnant.
12: I can't tell you.
13: my tongue is under. it will stab you
7: through your heart. You don't the truth, trust
15: me, I'm alive. Keep your eyes closed
9: and keep on smiling.
0: You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, the justice is not for sale act to end private prisons. More than 30 years ago, the Nation magazine published an early warning about the growth of the prison industrial complex. As taxpayers were calling for harsher sentences, they were simultaneously unwilling to pay for the prisons required to execute those sentences. From the June 15th, 1985 issue, quote, that contradiction has created an opening for private capital, unquote. Private prisons flourished even though they violate the principle that in a democratic society, only the state has the authority to revoke someone's liberty. In September, Senator Bernie Sanders introduced the Justice is Not for Sale Act. Its companion was introduced in the House by Representative Rual Grijalva of Arizona. Both have been referred to committee. This legislation would prohibit the federal government from entering into contracts with private prison corporations and return sole responsibility for overseeing correctional facilities to state and local governments. You can ask your representatives to sign on as co-sponsors to the Justice is Not for Sale Act using contacting the Congress to call and email them directly, as well as tag them in social media posts, asking them to take a public position on private prisons. Often, legislation like this must be introduced more than once. Contributing to the groundswell of support for ending private prison contracts now and getting more legislators on the record can make it possible for the next administration to sign it into law and end this injustice. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestofaleft.com. If ending private prisons matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the Justice is Not for Sale Act via social media so that others in your network can get involved. We just heard clips featuring Truth Loader giving a primer on how corporations make money locking people up in the U.S. and how it's led to the highest incarceration rate in the world. Redacted Tonight explained the benefits of the prison industrial complex, if you're a racist. Melissa Harris-Perry hosted a conversation about those outside of prison who are bearing the cost of their loved ones being locked away. Democracy Now! talked with David Simon, creator of The Wire, about the structural problems of over-policing. Weave, the podcast hosted by Congressman Keith Ellison, dove into the issue of the high cost of prison phone rates. The Young Turks explained Bernie Sanders' plan to abolish private prison contracts with the federal government, and I finished off with activism in support of that legislation. And now you'll be glad to hear that after Bernie Sanders announced that he would introduce a bill to ban private prison contracts last August and made clear that he's never taken money from private prison corporations while saying that it's immoral to take donations from private prisons or their lobbyists. And after protests by civil and immigrant rights groups on the subject, the Clinton campaign followed his lead the next month and pledged to stop taking donations from private prison companies and agreed that she would end private prison contracts if she became president. Nice to have her on board. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you.
2: Hey, Jay, this is Will from Mississippi. I was calling about, um, I'm not sure what his name is, the conservative gentleman who um, had the long email conversation with you about capitalism and what is good and bad and so forth. At one point during that discussion, he indicated, I believe, that there was no person who lived uh, even a hundred years ago who wouldn't give everything he had to live in our society. That's simply inaccurate. And there are thousands of people who lived in hundreds of different cultures that don't place any value on consumption that would be horrified by our culture. I'd point to, for example, Franciscans in the European Christian tradition, Uh, but there are many, many, many others throughout the world. What is distorted in our society is largely that we have come to put consumption as a virtue when in fact throughout most of human history it has been recognized as the vice that it is. Um, that's all I've got to say. Thanks.
16: Hey Jay, it's Wade. You know I put that sentence about not being a wise-ass in my email to you uh, as a a safeguard against a misunderstanding. Uh, Clearly that didn't work, Uh, at least in one case it didn't. Um, I think it's important that people realize the way I view you, the way I view the show. Uh, To me, you have always been a bridge to the liberal mind. Um, I don't know any hardcore liberals. You're, You're all I got. So I've been listening since 2011. This show has made me a more well-rounded person um, soften some of my stances change some of my stances Uh, you have an amazing ability to summarize things so I know that if I ask you a question you're not going to send me a a, a book list you're going to summarize your position you do that very well much better than I can do myself so I've always appreciated that about you I've always appreciated the show and I've been misunderstood a few times. I've had words put in my mouth a few times on the show. Not a lot, surprisingly, but a little bit. And I think what happened this time was that Kate assumes that all liberal or, excuse me, <laughs> all conservatives believe that we think extreme in income inequality is a good thing. And that, you know, we're probably evil people and all that. you.
13: Okay, it's Kate calling again. A couple things that I want to say. Right, really quickly, and you'll kind of see, Wade, that your argument about inequality being good really doesn't hold up at any level. Um,
16: I would suggest to, to Kate that maybe she should try listening to some conservative radio and become a little bit more well-rounded herself, and keep it in mind that if you want to have a serious conversation, that asking questions like, why are homeless vets a good thing, probably not the best way to do that most people aren't going to take that as a serious question so I don't think that she was wanting to have a conversation with me I think she just wanted to lash out and hit a conservative and the problem is I don't really have those beliefs and I was just merely wanting a different perspective most people provided that most people understood what I was saying apparently I need to spell it out a little bit better for for Kate in the future But, Kate, uh, if you want to get mad at a conservative, you should just wait a little bit. Because Jay will do a show on white privilege or affirmative action or transgenderism, and I'll say something uh, very clearly that you're going to get mad at me about. I assure you, if you want to get pissed off, I'm going to piss you off one of these days. And then you can call in and yell at me, and uh, everybody should enjoy that so just just hold on a little bit this one wasn't it but uh trust me it's coming so i want to say thank you to everybody that provided that different perspective and jay i i think it's awesome you did an entire show in response to me i wasn't expecting that but you're awesome like that so so cool other than that i
12: will talk to you later Hey, this is Chris from Littleton, Colorado. I just finished listening to the podcast on uh, college costs and whatnot, and you made some comments at the end of the show, the closing of the show, regarding Hillary's plan for college as uh, Bernie's. And you hit on something on such a huge chord with me regarding universal programs and programs that aren't universal and how they divide us. That's been something that has bothered me for so long medicaid is probably the best example of that you know it's a program that's well intentioned but when you look at it you know the people on it either are paying very little into it or they're not paying anything because they can't so they're looked at as freeloaders because they get health care and they don't pay for it as opposed to a universal program that covers us all regardless of income at the same time we can look at things like waste and fraud and abuse and things like that was in our system. Why are we paying for four separate systems? The VA, Medicare, Medicaid, and the private system when the average American only gets to take advantage of one. They're all divisive programs, and I can't... I Like I said, that struck such a chord with me. Everybody pays in, we all get the benefits. Why, like you said, we've seen this movie before, we know how it ends, we need to stop this stuff, and we need to go for universal college for all you know, medicare for all it works it works in other countries it should work in the united states thanks
13: hi uh, this is heather from tampa florida i just had to call in about chris's message from the last show
12: hi this is chris from dallas it's astounding what we don't teach people in school about important things like financial
2: education.
13: I'm a trans woman and I um, I don't have enough money to invest. The message that he left was just losing with, with privilege. And I just, I really had to say something about it because just it's been nagging at me all day. I have four credit cards and only one good pair of shoes. I'm just barely keeping my head above water. I have a steady job. I've had it for the last two years, but it's just not enough to pay my basic necessities. I have, you know, medical bills recently. Uh, my premium went up this year and, uh, they stopped paying for me to see my doctor. She's the only one who would talk to me about my medical needs as a, as a trans person. So. I just I had to pay the full price for a visit this last doctor's appointment because they uh denied the coverage just out of the blue they they had been they had been paying for it i have been seeing her for the last two years and now I'm uh deeply concerned all having to pay a lot more money to see her and i I don't really have a way of making up the the difference um so just wanted to let you know that there's actually people who are trying their hardest with their money and still not making it. It's a, it's a possibility. Thanks. and um, I, I hope that I didn't come across spiteful. It's just um, it's just a very personal message. So uh, have have a nice day. Thanks
0: for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And today, I just want to respond to Heather's message that we just heard. First of all, a reminder to all of you that if you think that the relationship between you, your healthcare provider, and your health insurance company is either a little or even a lot fucked up it probably doesn't hold a candle to what trans people often have to go through. Between insurance deciding to not cover critical care and doctors being either ignorant or outright discriminatory towards trans people, it is a mess that is completely fucked up and bullshit. Uh, so for Heather or any other trans or gender nonconforming people struggling to find competent uh, healthcare. We've actually promoted these on the show before, but it's been a while. Uh, transrecord.com and Rad Remedy, like R-A-D, are places uh, specifically designed for trans people to go, and they're like a nationwide directory of doctors who get your issues. So, you know, I, I'm sure I'm telling a lot of people what they already know, but for anyone who doesn't, and, you know, if you're looking for, uh you know accurate safe respectful and comprehensive care uh, whether it's you know heather or anyone else hopefully that can be of some help and you know for heather's situation i know it'd be terrible to have to find a new doctor but if switching insurance plans just isn't an option and they would pay a different doctor but they won't pay yours then maybe those resources can help you find someone who knows what they're doing i know you said like this is the only doctor you could find who you know, you know would actually work with you? So I don't. Maybe there is someone else out there that can fit your needs. I hope that's the case. Now, aside from that, I just want to make clear why, as a person who cares deeply about poverty, I had no qualms playing Chris's message about the need for better financial education to help people understand how investing in our current system works. Uh, And here's an imperfect analogy. I I know you guys know that I love to use imperfect analogies. In the racial and gender justice movements, there's a lot of talk about white feminism, sometimes referred to as being trademarked, white feminism TM. Uh, And it's meant to refer to feminists who care about women's issues, but they don't understand uh, or don't care that You know, women of color, for example, have a slightly different set of issues that they have to deal with as women. You know, not all women are created equal, and it's important to recognize those differences, basically. So, it's basically being said that there's this colorblindness to those who fall into the category of white feminist, trademarked. So then, of course, a lot of people who are white and who are feminists and who understand and care deeply about the different issues... Black women face, as an example, as compared to white women, get offended. They they hear that and they ask, you know, how and why would people group all white feminists together and malign us? But this is a misunderstanding. The answer to that question is simply, if the description of a clueless white feminist who doesn't understand intersectionality doesn't apply to you, then the person wasn't speaking to you, or referring to you, and that there's no need to feel lumped into that. Uh, White feminism is, is a way of describing a type of person, not a way of grouping all people together and labeling them as being alike. So, Let's make a clunky comparison regarding financial literacy. What would be incredibly offensive and what no one should say is that poor people are poor because they don't know how to manage their money. Luckily, that is not what Chris was saying. Uh, He was saying, you know, I think I can sum up basically that one of the reasons why rich people are rich is because they invest and have a decent understanding of how our current market system works and that he was advocating better financial literacy for everyone of all income levels would be good which I think is undeniable. Now, to be clear, I think it would have been awesome if Chris had decided to go out of his way and acknowledge that not everyone has access to enough funds to invest or to even save, or to mention that, you know, that certain level of poverty, there is simply no level of financial wizardry that can overcome poverty-level wages or crushing burdens like uh, high medical bills. You know, I think it's a great habit to get into, to give a sort of hat tip to those who you realize your comments do not apply to. If you're talking about investing, then clearly you're not addressing those with no money to invest. But bringing up the subject and not expressly acknowledging those in poverty doesn't mean that the person doesn't understand that there are those people. Uh, so like white feminists who understand the importance of intersectionality, it's okay. You are not being maligned. You are not being forgotten. Your contributions and your struggles are not being forgotten. As always, I can't actually read Chris's mind, but this is how I understood his comments and why I was happy to put them on and say, yeah, like I pretty much co sign the bit about financial literacy. I wouldn't have phrased Everything that he said, the way he phrased it, if I had said it, but I'm a different person than him. I, so I put it up there. I said, "Look, like I'm basically agreeing with this," and I didn't feel like he was, uh, you know, unjustly erasing those in poverty or anything like that. So, like I said, that's how I interpreted Chris's comments. I don't know where he really stands. It would have been lovely if he had given a hat tip to those in poverty, but I think the fact that he ignored those in poverty was benign rather than, you know, anything malicious. That certainly uh, would have been true for me, and I hope it's true for the vast majority of those listening. Keep the comments coming in two zero two nine 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 three nine nine one. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Get even more from us by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including
7: stay